Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Big Chill Podcast, the Premier League Preview. Hockey and basketball playoffs are heating up, and that's uh, been causing a little trash talking amongst us boys. Uh, But I think the big debate of the weekend between us was whether or not nachos should have meat on them caused a uh, big outrage amongst us and we went to Instagram on a poll to decide and as of right now the poll is 59 people voting yes for meat on nachos seven people voting no for meat on nachos two of which are you guys and two of your friends (laughs) actually three of your friends so a very um convincing yes for meat on nachos well, hold on. You didn't mention the fact that one of the votes for yes is also you. You can't just... Yes, one, you, one of the 50... Well, let's put this in perspective. One of 59 is me. Two of seven was you. Well, still. And let's also say we had a, we had a vote on Twitter going. And so far, every vote has been for no meat. There's two votes. It's you two. No, 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 no. Actually, Neither I haven't voted on Twitter. I haven't voted either. You can't vote on your own polls. So those are two random people who have, who have voted on that, and both of them 100% in agreement. Twitter has spoken. It's, they it's say, one, one, it is 1-1 one, one in the polls. They say a good sample size of the population is two people. Well, you know, as I said to you off, you know, off the podcast, if the last three, four years has taught us anything, popular votes are not the way to decide things. So really, the fact that the majority of people have voted for meat on nachos means that clearly no meat on nachos is better. <laughs> so I was thinking about it more. And I, I think the reason that you two don't want meat on nachos is the type of meat on nachos you're getting in Europe, where I assume it's probably more like chili based and it makes the nacho really soggy and soft. And in that instance, I would agree with you. I'd rather not have the meat and have not crispy nachos. But if you have good meat, like chopped up pieces of chicken or brisket or pulled pork, something that's not super juicy and you still have a crispy nacho, then I think you're definitely adding the value to the nacho without a doubt. First of all, like, I don't know why you're portraying Europe as being like, oh, Tex-Mex has yet to make its way over here. Okay. How many restaurants do you go to that have nachos on the menu? I mean, in, in Paris, quite a few. Yeah, quite a few is what ten in Paris. I, I would mean, I, I would be hard pressed to find a restaurant in the United States that almost doesn't have nachos. What? No. <laughs> oh my god! What a statement! It's true. Of, I'd love wait. to go to like a really high-end fish restaurant. And just have like oh, nachos fi- on oh, the menu. Fish nachos, shrimp nachos. Yeah, on just, there. I like the, the, I like the fact that you, you go to, you'll go to like a three-star Michelin restaurant and you'll be like, oh, could I have some nachos, please, sir? We don't have nachos on the menu. What the fuck is this place? <laughs> I, I would say most places in the UK have nachos as like a main, then, a sharer, an appetizer, as any sort of combination except dessert. And then second of all, the other thing, even aside from that, you're also portraying me as someone who like, ooh, I once heard about big America. <laughs> like I've never, I've yet to go, but maybe one day I'll get my American experience and get some nachos with some pulled pork on them. That's the well, dream. Let's see. <laughs> the American in, in, dream. 
in seven years, you've had one American nacho and it was served to you in a child size baseball helmet. So that's your American nachos over the past what you, seven what years. Talk, what are you talking about? <laughs> On my trips to America, I've been to several Mexican restaurants. And as everyone knows, Ohio mm-hmm. is famous for Mexican food. Uh, yes, it's super famous. I wouldn't be able to challenge you. <laughs> I mean, surely. Oh, when you think you Mexican-Americans, the- you think Ohio. I mean, what does, Ar- what does, um, what does Frank yeah. know about this? He's just in Arizona. America's arm nowhere near basically flip sides of each other whoa 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 <laughs> don't take New Jersey's nickname away from it Eddie New Jersey sorry. is the armpit of America sorry and, and we hold that <laughs> distinction with pride yeah I saw today some actually a mutual friend of ours posted a meme and it was it said if you think your life is really bad right now just remember that there are people living in New Jersey it's <laughs> pretty good you know the original nacho recipe didn't have meat though right oh, i'm sure it didn't hmm. was meat even Sorry. invented then was was meat invented <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking yeah so go on, so tell I, us tell us because because sam seemingly he, he broke this little piece of news to me before we start recording but sam was contacted by someone with the with a link to the history of nachos and the original nacho recipe it's actually one of the least exciting origin stories you'll ever come across. But um, well, apparently... they started in northern Mexico. Oh, oh wrong! It was Ohio. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no! It was a guy called Ignacio Anaya, and um, it was easier to call him Nacho as the name. And apparently, he was in a restaurant, and he hastily served up tortilla chips, cheese, and jalapenos. And then suddenly it stuck. So it was in the 1940s, which made me laugh about your meat invention. (laughs) They'd invented like guns and things like that, 20 years off the moon landing, but they hadn't understood what a cow was. No, they haven't gotten into efficient livestock yet. Sam, how was it for you to like receive a DM on Instagram that wasn't just a dick pic? It was actually before the dick pic. I said, thank you for the knowledge. And then they just flowed after that. It was quite upsetting. Oh, he, was, he said, I know, he I said, know, I, I know how you, Ronaldo feels. I heard you don't like meat on your nachos, but do you like a little bit of meat on the side? And then just bam, there it was. Eddie, how do you, how do you not know it wasn't like a Brett Favre picture where instead of Crocs, he was just standing in a plate of nachos? <laughs> well... The other big debate we had, like I said, was the hockey and basketball playoffs. So my round two competition against Sam the Squid has pretty much gone completely down the middle with two of my picks, the Vegas Knights and the Islanders, up 3-1 in their series, and two of Sam's picks, the Lightning and the Dallas Stars, up 3-1 in their games. So as of now, it looks like a split is in the cards. Although, I forget what the stat was. They put it up uh, after one of the games. It's pretty convincing for a team up 3-1. I think they're, I think it was less than 5% of the teams come back down 3-1 in NHL playoffs. So maybe one of us gets lucky, but we'll see. Which would mean then I think we go next round and we just pick the Stanley Cup champion, a one in four shot? Um, I say no. I think he's still got to do no. round by round. 
yeah. round by round. So two games. Well, I, yeah, but maybe one of you goes 0 for 2. Like if you go 0 for 2, Frank, and Sam goes 2 for 2, you look awful. Whereas yeah. if you pick the Stanley Cup winner and you win, you could have maybe only been right on one of the three one of the three potential series. Well, I guess it would be two of the three, right? But yeah. I think you yeah, you have to do round by round. It's too it's too close now to just do a skip. Okay. How do you how do you feel about this, Frank? Because you know, we picked completely opposing picks this time round. We're probably gonna tie beforehand. It was what, like we got I got five of eight or six of eight, right? Like how, you got how five do five of eight. So how do you feel about the kind of going up against Sam the Squid at the moment? Are you confident in the latter stages in the final? I'm not super confident. And it's like I said before, and I feel like once you get to this round in hockey, mostly any team can win. Once a team gets hot, they all have enough talent to pretty much go through. I mean, for instance, I am still shocked that the Avs are down 3-1 against the Dallas Stars. Yeah, I don't know that if was you like said my this most- before. I don't know if you said that before because one of these picks you were so confident about. There I was very confident that, about Vegas. There were, there were two I'm teams the, you basically penciled into the next round, and that was Colorado and, and Vegas. Vegas. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is I, I'm still shocked that the Avs aren't I, – I mean, they're playing okay, but, I mean, their backup goalie's in, so obviously that's probably a concern a little bit. But I thought they would have a lot more firepower and, I mean, to kind of keep up with the Stars. And everyone knows, right? Playoff hockey. If a, if a goalkeeper gets goalie. hot, if a goalie gets hot, then anything can happen. Anything can happen. I mean, look at uh, the. I I texted Eddie. I think jokingly, right? I thought I texted you. The Lightning goalie is just on fire right now. I think the Lightning versus Bruins. Uh, the stat was something along the lines of fourteen out of the last seventeen goals have been scored by the Lightning in the series. Something ridiculous and that he's just shutting them down. I mean, the Bruins are getting tons of shots and chances, but just shutting them down. So, you know, Eddie, you're right. Anytime a goalie gets hot in the playoffs, look out. And actually, that brings up a really good question I had for you, because I know today we're going to talk about the Premier League, and we're going to do our Premier League preview. And I was doing my research and reading about teams and some teams kind of trying to upgrade on their keeper and things like that. So it came up, I was thinking, do you think – the goalie is more important in hockey or in European football, soccer? Mm, it probably depends a little bit on the team. Um, but I would say probably it's more important in hockey just because you're going to be more involved. If, you, if, you're a good goal, if you're a goalkeeper for a good team, you might only be called into action four or five times in a match. Now, obviously, you can't let everything in. And you're going to have big matches where you need to make big saves. And it's more than just saves. It's communicating with the, with the defenders and keeping everyone in, in the right place and stuff like that. But I think, you know, even if you're dominant in hockey, what, the other team's going to have 15 shots, probably? Even, even probably if you're, like 25. Yeah, 20. so if you were really I've, terrible and if you're going to let in five goals, no matter how good your team is, they're going to struggle. And, and that was kind of my thing, I, I think, is it – is a goalie more important when they face 20 to 40 shots or is it more important when they face three shots, you know, and can't let any in versus having 30 and maybe you can let in three, four goals and still come out on top, especially these playoffs, the hockey teams have been scoring, you know, averaging probably over three goals a game. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, my vote, yeah, I get, my vote would be for hockey. But I mean, I actually think goalkeepers generally are underrated members of football teams. It's kind of changed a little bit in the Premier League in recent years because people have been praising Allison at Liverpool so much uh, that it's maybe sort of not that I don't think people within clubs or within teams were underappreciating the value of the goalkeeper. But I do think supporters in general kind of saw, particularly if you're at a good club, you just thought, look, as long as we have someone semi-competent, we'll be fine. And I think now they're starting to see the value of, actually, if we have a really good goalkeeper, that has a spillover into every other aspect of our team. Yeah. And also when you look at like Edison is a similar one at Man City, like the best teams have the best keepers. There always used to be that kind of, I wouldn't call it a myth, but they always used to say that um, you would always see a goalkeeper more for a lower quality Premier League team because naturally they're going to be in action more. So you're going to be more aware of the mistakes they're making, et cetera. But I, I, I'd say you're right that there's more value on them now in terms of like marshalling a back line, uh, pushing people out, telling people where to go, telling them to press, telling them to counter, that kind of stuff. You, you definitely see keepers a lot more animated now. I, I don't think it's possible for any team to have an average keeper and do well anymore. I mean, De Gea might be, well, De Gea is kind of a shining example of that problem there. Yeah, yeah De diff- that's what I was going to bring up, right? I mean, like, you, you look at the De Gea situation at United and people are basically saying he's ruining games for them. So in that sense, the keeper maybe is more important because he can literally ruin a game, at least in fans' eyes, right? Well, that's always been the thing, right? That's what goalkeepers always say about themselves is that in terms of um, the mentality you have to have as a keeper, that you can be a forward or a midfielder and you make a mistake and it's not that important. You know, if you miss an open goal, if you're – I mean, obviously – there are moments where it is Raheem Sterling missing an open goal in the Champions League final was a huge moment that people could point to. But if he'd done it in the second minute of the match and they'd gone on to win, no one would have thought anything of it. It would have been forgotten about. And so, whereas a goalkeeper, if you make a mistake, it probably means that a goal has been scored. And that's obviously a much more sort of measurable and moment than just missing a chance. And, De Gea is an interesting one because De Gea is now, to me, De Gea is either the best, worst, the sort of best bad goalkeeper in the Premier League or he's the worst good goalkeeper in the Premier League. And I'm not sure which one it is, but he obviously used to be. I mean, the crazy thing is if he'd gone back four or five seasons, you probably would have said he's the best goalkeeper in the world. So it's fall from grace. And it's just he still makes great saves and still looks very competent a lot of the time. But then he just makes errors that if one of us made, and Sam and I have had this conversation a lot. Like, if we were playing in a seven-a-side, five-a-side match, and one of us made that some of the mistakes he makes in goal, we would be so critical of each other. So to imagine doing that when you're playing for Manchester United, and you know, and for Spain, and you're making those those kind of very basic errors, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean the the, the great example for De Gea, of, or, or great example of a keeper in general, is the Man U Chelsea FA Cup game where he made two absolute howlers, uh, but he also pulled off probably three or four incredible saves. So you'll remember him because he messed up and obviously a couple of the goals De Gea was at fault for. But simultaneously, Chelsea probably would have scored some if it wasn't for the incredible goalkeeping that De Gea showed. So it's, it can be a bit thankless being a goalkeeper. Um, everyone expects the basics have to be done right or a team will score. So it's kind of like you, you can't get anything wrong. And um, 
I guess the only time a keeper's probably in a win-win scenario is like a penalty shootout because I don't think many people expect you to save a penalty. You are more expected to score than you are to save. So if it's a save, it's more of a surprise. So I'd probably say that's the goalkeeper's kind of like best win-win scenario in that sense. Well, unless you're a Dutch goalkeeper and you get subbed off just for the penalty shootout. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I guess the interesting one with De Gea, because obviously it's a big debate and we're going to get on it. We'll probably get onto this topic in a way when we're men. Maybe we start with Manchester United, then it's the natural place because of this conversation. But obviously the debate within United is, do they move on from De Gea? And because they have a, a sort of natural replacement, obviously, with having had a very good young goalkeeper out on loan in the Premier League who had a good year last year. So, but for me... The, the 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 reason why I'd be hesitant in a way is actually Manuel Neuer is an interesting comparison for De Gea. And we spoke about, you know, last week when we were talking about the Champions League final and Manuel, Manuel Neuer's, you know, great performance, sort of match-winning performance for Bayern Munich. And Neuer also went through a down period where he seemed to lose all of his confidence and similarly went from being arguably the best goalkeeper in the world to being very unreliable. And maybe all it takes, so now it will be interesting, a, Manuel Neuer's definitely changed his perception because I think he's reestablished himself as being considered a very good goalkeeper just by performing in a big moment. But it probably also just a re- reflection of a return to confidence. And with De Gea, you have to admit, the thing you'd be worried about is United is you're never going to get value selling him now. And then if he goes somewhere else and that's all he needs to get a bit more confidence back is a fresh start, you're going to look like you got rid of one of the world's best goalkeepers for a cut price. Yeah, and I mean, we'll obviously... Eddie, don't don't shoot all the loads before the Premier League preview starts. So no. keep keep some of your hot takes in there. Um, but yeah, I think just kind of wrapping up the the whole comparison thing, I kind of agree. I think hockey, the goal is more important only because in soccer, I feel like you can have really great goalkeeping, but as long as you have decent standard goalkeeping where you save the saves you're supposed to make and you don't make terrible errors like maybe De Gea does sometimes, I think you're more okay. Whereas in hockey, a goalie can really change a game going from an average keeper to a really, really good keeper. I mean, the best hockey goalies, I think, have a more of an impact than the best soccer goalies do compared to like the, the baseline average level. You know, and, and you see that in the playoffs. Like a goalie gets hot and it's impossible to get a goal by him. You know, so, and you're seeing that Maybe. Now, I'm screwed. Do you know what I'm saying, though? Like, like, like you're I right. feel like I, in, in soccer, a goalie's there and they're going to save the ones that they can save. But most of them, if they're really good shots, there's really not a keeper that's going to be able to save it. Whereas in hockey, no matter how good the shot is, there's probably a, a, a really good goalie that can save it. No, you're, you're right. And... Uh, I mean, they have that stat now, right? Which is based on sort of expected saves. They work that out as to what they can use to measure how good a keeper was. And that's yeah. where De Gea, that's where De Gea is so far below average is that he, he lets in attempts that every other goalkeeper basing in the Premier League would have saved. Yeah. But, and, but Sam touched on the good point, which was that you don't notice them typically or like historically maybe haven't noticed them as much at big teams. But I can say, for example, when, and to just to please all of our American listeners, but when, when Brad Fiedel was the goalkeeper of Blackburn Rovers and he had a couple of seasons where I genuinely think he was the best goalkeeper in the world. I mean, he had the great 2002 World Cup 
And then around that period when Blackburn were challenging for European places every season, he was he would time and time again. I mean, he, they Blackburn won matches where you would say the only reason they won was because of his performances. I mean, he famously did it against Arsenal once where he just kept out just, I mean, you had efforts that you would have thought maybe six or seven times you thought were definitely goals and he was just pulling off incredible saves. So there are moments when a, when a goalkeeper in football will have that sort of match-winning performance. But it's true probably just on the fact, if you put it in the top corner, it doesn't really matter who the goalkeeper is. So yeah. there, are, there are a lot of, uns- whereas in hockey, because of the size of the net, you could argue that every attempt is saveable fundamentally. And the size of can- the goalie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like a, goal- a goalie can, can reach everything, right? Like if their reactions are quick enough, they could get their hand or their stick or their foot like somewhere in time. Whereas in football, if you rifles, you know, if you bend one into the top corner or just smash one in, there's moments where you go, unless the goalkeeper was superhuman, he couldn't have done anything about it. So, Eddie, do you want to give us a little uh, basketball playoff update against you and Sam the Squid? This one's yeah, it's, up intensely. It's, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, the last time we did it, it looked like, well, the Thunder, uh, the Thunder Rocket series was tied, and it looked... It was kind of a toss-up at that point. But I guess the Rockets, in a way, have been really helped by the boycott and then the the break because it's allowed Westbrook to come out. He's on a, a minutes cap. But still, the fact that they get to have Westbrook come on for sort of a quarter or two quarters of game, it's just a game-changing difference for them. And I think for the, for the Thunder, they just don't have a setup that can stop when when the Rockets have... Harden, Westbrook, and Gordon all there as a threat, as a scoring threat. There's just no way for them to stop stop the, the Rockets from being able to score kind of when they want. So now up 3-2, I'd be incredibly surprised if the, uh, the Thunder come back. So that was one of the two series that Sam and I disagreed on. We, we are going to go 6-for-6 six six in the series we agreed on. So that's pretty incredible. Although they all were favorites, but Sam didn't know that when he made those picks. Yeah. And then in the other series, when we last spoke, the Jazz were 3-1 up against the Nuggets. So it looked like Sam was going to win the other series that we disagreed on. And now it's 3-3, so going to a game seven. And obviously the Nuggets have all the momentum. And equally, it just looks like the Jazz probably don't have the depth in their team necessary to compete. And so the Nuggets have basically, they've been stuck in this position for one, a little bit in a way of like the, the Thunder Rockets situation. They have to double team one of the Nuggets' two main scoring options. And when they do that, the Nuggets' overall sort of passing and movement is good enough that they're just going to make the open shot. And on the, on, the other, on the other end, the Jazz just look like they're kind of struggling to score a little bit right now. Have you seen Jamal Murray's last three games, his stat line for Denver? Oh. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. 50, 42, 50. That's insane. It's not just the stat line, too. It's, it's actually one of the aspects of the NBA I almost don't understand. But all of these guys can hit shots. I mean, they're, like, just pulling up from anywhere. So, to me, that's the crazy thing. And, like, to watch it, if you, if you either just want a team to win, if you're a fan of a team, or if you've bet on one of the teams, you'll see a guy just pull up from like 35, 40 feet out, and your initial reaction will be like, oh, you idiot. And then it just drains it. And you're like, wow, what a, what a great decision you've just made. And it's a weird one to, 
and I guess for young people, they're just growing up and shooting from everywhere and they're kind of inspired by Steph Curry and all the rest. And so they're just learning that from a young age. But what it's the kind of thing that if, if I'd been doing it, like if when I was playing like on my middle school team, if I had decided to just, hey, when I'm feeling it, I'm just shooting from anywhere, I think I would have been dragged off the court in about 90 seconds. Yeah, and then I guess the only other newsworthy thing coming out of the NBA was the the second round of the scuffle between Morris and uh, Donich. That was um, – did, did you see that? I, basketball fights to me, or lack thereof of a fight, are just so pathetic. I wished – I wish that both teams didn't rush out and fake hold each other back because I would just like to see them not be held back and see them do nothing because the pretending that they're going to fight each other while they're being held back by three, five foot, uh, six foot five guys is so pathetic. Cause what is, what is Luca actually going to do to Morris? Was he actually going to fight him? No. It's, what was the, what was the reason for it? Like, what was the aggravation? The origin of it is that Luke is getting picked on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, by a bigger well, person. <laughs> well, for starter, Luka Doncic, he he does complain a lot about calls and stuff. But I think it was in Game Five. It was either Game Four or Game Five, but I think it was Game Five. Um, no, no, it was, game, it was Game One or Two when when Porzingis got thrown out. That was the first. No, that's that's not the origin. Morris, of, but that's not the origin of this issue. The origin no, no. of this. The, the origin of this issue is that they felt that there was a moment, I think it was game five and, and Doncic obviously is carrying an injury and his ankle is, is injured. And they felt that, I think it was Morris actually himself, but intentionally stepped on uh, Luca's ankle. He gave and, him a flat and, tire. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the, the Mavericks thought it was a dirty play. And so they went, when they went, like, went up the other end, then one of them, uh, like, grabbed Morris by the face. And that kind of spun off. And then since then, there's just bad blood. But you're right. Like, bad blood. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the only thing worse than NBA fights might be Major League Baseball fights most of the time. Like, at least they the, swing sometimes. Sometimes. But at the same time, a lot of the time, it's just, like, 60 guys slowly jogging towards like the pitcher's mound and then kind of all just standing around while like seven of them hug each other and then they walk yeah. away and you know most of them are like why the fuck are we even out here but i like at least in the mlb it's not even just the players like the coaches and the assistant coaches will run out so you see a 65 year old out of shape overweight man slowly jogging out to the center well, not just that funny. a 65 year old overweight man in uniform that doesn't really fit in. Like, that's the best part about it. That's the only thing I wish I do. Like, to me, I still, for the life of me, don't get why, like, baseball coaches wear the uniform. But I would love it to be applied to other sports. Oh. Like, I, would I would love to watch, like, an NBA coach have to be in, like, the uniform. Or even worse, like, a hockey coach. Hockey, and have yeah. And have to be, like, in pads and stuff, like, on the side. Have a badminton. They can wear the, your white short shorts. <laughs> Oh, well, the fans just do that anyway because it looks so good. The, Eddie, the other good part about the uh, baseball is when you when they open up the uh, – what the hell, where the pitchers are, and they have to run completely across the field, and it's a 30 to 45-second jog for them to get into the action, and you just slowly see them coming from the outfield. Like, oh, they're going to get there in uh, 30, 40 seconds. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Keep waiting. 
I love that part too. Well, the the good one then, I mean, you're not going to see it now, but if you, after the podcast and for any of our listeners, like John Boy Media, who does some of the best baseball related videos and content. I mean, he does some other sports too, but he did one video. I can't remember which pitcher it was. And I think it was last year who decided to sprint from the, from the bullpen to take less time. So the guy like the, the door opens and the guy full on sprints, the whatever it is. 250 300 feet to the pitcher's mound while the catcher and like the first and the third baseman are standing there the catcher looks up and sees him sprinting and is just like what a fucking idiot this guy is like sprinting in he gets to the pitcher's mound he's out of breath so then he has to take some time standing on the pitcher's mound to try and gather his breath even when he starts pitching he's still out of breath and then he proceeds to like give up a home run and gets pulled instantly (laughs) (laughs) it's just such a dumb sequence that's pretty good but yeah i mean it was another pathetic attempt at a fight in the nba there was a good one was that last year where they were really decently throwing punches on like the side and and one of the fans that was close to the court got knocked over or something like that that was a somewhat decent one i forget who that was yeah, plus you had Russell Westbrook, right, threatening oh, to God. kill to like kill a guy and his wife. But I mean, he's, I think he's the wow. one I would love to see him get knocked out so hard. He if runs you, his mouth so much. If you if there's ever going to be a time when there's going to be another really good NBA fight, it is going to be during the bubble because you know they have all this pent up frustration that they're just limited in what they can do. So I could see like the 11th man on a team just being like, fuck this. I'm going to punch this guy in the face. Like I'm um, especially when it gets to a series that, you know, you're going to lose. Hmm. Is there any repercussions for it? Like I, get I know a, in, you get a suspension and a fine, but why would you care at the end of the season? I guess. Well, the suspension would carry over to next year. Right. And the fine might oh, be pretty big, hmm. but, uh, uh and that's also the other interesting dynamic because we discussed obviously the boycott last last week, but since we discussed it, a lot of news or leaks came out about the dynamic. They had that all the players gathered, so whatever it was, the 200, 250 players gathered for a meeting to discuss what they were going to do and to discuss their options. And there's been like bits and pieces that have leaked out about the dynamic within those discussions that happened. And and it's always difficult to tell how much of it's true because some of it's been leaked by one source and then discredited by another. But basically, it involves the fact that the young players felt that LeBron James was really condescending in um, in what he said. That LeBron James was supposedly a little bit upset with the Bucks because he felt like they shouldn't have decided to boycott first by themselves, and because that it made everyone else look bad, basically. Because it was like, oh, you guys think it's serious enough for you not to play? Well, now we look like assholes because we were willing to play. So it looks like we don't care about this cause. So is that him just wanting to be? Yeah. Yeah, he just wants to be the kind of catalyst for it all. That it's hard because supposedly, too, coming from the Bucks, the Bucks' reaction to it was like, we were forfeiting that game. And we didn't expect everyone else to not play because we forfeited the game. Like the Bucks treated it as if they were forfeiting and that everyone else was going to play their games as normal and that they were going to play a game the next time against the Magic and the series, instead of being 3-1, was going to be 3-2, which is the ultimate smack in the face to how confident they were they were going to beat the Magic. They were literally like, we don't need this game. 
we're we're happy. You guys, you guys can get back into this series three two. We're still pretty confident we can win one of the remaining two games. All right, and I guess the last thing we can talk about before we get into our Premier League preview is the finish of the golf. Did you boys watch that one at all? Well, Eddie, I know I know you watched that one, Eddie. Sorry, sorry to yeah. pour, pour salt on an open wound there, Eddie. It's okay. So I, for context, as Sam and Frank know, I had a bet on Dustin Johnson winning the tournament um, that I placed on the on the Thursday, and so was feeling pretty good about it going into the final round. He was tied with Matsuyama at uh, one under going into the final round, and then he stretched his lead early on. He was four under at one point, and then nearest challenger was one under. So it really started to look like he might just pull away from the pack. I knew I was kind of screwed because all of the commentators, like every single one of them was like, I don't know how anyone can catch Dustin Johnson right now. Like this is a competition for second place. There's nothing that's going to stop DJ right now. Like they just, everything was relentless. They're like, he's driving the ball so well. He's not missing any fairways. His iron play is so good and his putting is reliable. And there's no way anyone can get close. And then maybe two holes later, he was tied for the lead. Sounded Duke Kersey, didn't it? <laughs> it's just one of those things, you know, when you hear commentators really trying to drill something home, you know, it's, 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 it's like whenever they're like, this guy hasn't missed a field goal attempt in seven years. And it's like, well, he's just shanked oh, that one. There we go. So Dustin lost in the playoff, didn't he, to Ram? That's what, that's what yes. I saw. But I didn't really see the kind of, was it like a, like a really good putt? Was it a terrible shot? What, what actually happened? So A, Ram took the lead. I think it was on the 15th hole. It was a par five. He sliced his tee shot into the trees and the beginning of the trees, A, it's thick trees, thick bush. And if you go in the trees, it's out of bound. Like the edge of the rough, which is only a couple of yards of rough after the, to the right-hand side of the fairway on that hole is out of bounds. And he sliced it in there. And so it was like, well, that's, that's going to be out of bounds. And that's probably him out of the tournament, like out of the running for the, to win the tournament. And he got lucky that it went, it went deep into the trees, hit a tree and came back out. And he was then able wow. to salvage that position and get a birdie on the par five. He hit an incredible uh, third shot, which put him ahead. And uh, Dustin Johnson then went on to the 18th down, one down. Uh, John Rahm was already in the clubhouse. And Dustin Johnson sank like an incredible putt for birdie to take it to the playoff. That I mean, was one a of the crazy putts. Yeah, one of the best putts. You know, like one of the best putts you've seen in a long time for, in terms of a meaningful putt, right? And then they went to the playoff. They were just sudden death, 18th hole. Uh, they both hit their seconds. Dustin Johnson put himself in a pretty decent position where you thought he was definitely getting a four and if not, uh, possibly had a chance at a birdie. And John Rahm overhit his second shot and was at the back of the green. And it was a green with a lot of Frank's favorite word, a lot of undulations on the green. Oh my and, god! Uh, the undulations were unreal on that on that and, green. And he was sixty six feet from the hole. And again, the commentators were like, "John Rahm's a great putter, but he is going to have to come up with a miracle to even have himself within five feet of the hole on this one." And he hit his putt, and just me watching it, you're kind of like, "He hit it." I'm watching it, and then there's this moment where it starts to drop towards the hole, and I was like, "Oh god, it's going to go in!" And then you just slowly watched it come in. And yeah, he sank it 66 feet out to, to win it. I mean, Dustin Johnson then took his putt, but 
the chances of Dustin Johnson then sinking another putt. If that had happened, you would have argued that it was the greatest sequence of putting probably in history. Yeah. But uh, it's a shame for Dustin Johnson because his great putt, putt A, was outdone, and then B, was meaningless. Yeah, I mean, Dustin Johnson's putt was super impressive because it, it, it double broke. I mean, it broke the one way and then came all the way back and then broke back in. But then watching Rom's putt, he was aiming like – 90 degrees in the other direction when he started that putt i mean he went over that that undulation and then it just started coming down and once it got about halfway yeah i mean pretty much thought the same thing as you like either this is going right in or this could go by 10 feet like it was moving pretty quick yeah so there's the always that killer. chance that if it didn't hit it was going way past like dustin johnson's pace on his putt that to me was actually the more incredible thing like he had the pace on his down it was perfect so his just like went in the hole and if he'd had missed say it had missed by an inch it was going to stop within a foot so even if he'd missed you would have said wow that was an incredible putt whereas john roms was was a it was going at a great speed and just getting faster so you're right like if he hadn't hit the hit the hole he was going another five six feet past it so it was one of those situations if you're dustin johnson you would have been like i was so close there to being in a situation where John Rahm has a very difficult par putt and instead now I have to sink an incredible birdie putt just to just to have another shot at this. And the great situation too, right, is that was the it's part of the FedEx playoffs. So they've got the final of the FedEx playoffs. So the top thirty players in the FedEx rankings are going uh going at it next week and it starts on Friday. So it's a Friday to Monday tournament to give them a little bit of a break. And so I think Dustin, I think after those results, I think like they're both in the top five. I think it might be Dustin Johnson's one. I think John Rahm might be third now, maybe second now after that. So that's kind of an interesting thing too, because they're obviously going to be going head to head immediately after. And the FedEx cup playoff final has, has that cool format where it's handicapped at the start. So like Dustin Johnson as the number one seed is going to start, 10 under par and then the next number two starts eight under par number three starts six under par it's like a cool format for a tournament yeah and sam there actually was a slight duca curse for dustin johnson because my father was watching the tournament and he texted me about halfway through does dustin johnson ever win And I said, yeah, actually, he's won twice already this year, and he got second the, at the PGA Championship. He's doing pretty well. And he goes, I, like, I don't think he's going to win. <laughs> and then, of course, he didn't win. The, um, the killer with Dustin Johnson, he has no personality, right? Like, he has zero personality. He's just this walking golfing machine, basically. He's so boring. And also, even, like, when he sank the putt on the 18th, his reaction was so muted. Like you would have thought he just made a putt and like a mini golf challenge. Whereas when John Rahm sang his putt, he went absolutely crazy. I think John Rahm's like kind of an asshole and a crybaby, but even so, like you look at that difference in a way, John Rahm's celebration, I think sucked the air out of Dustin Johnson, no matter what. Whereas John Rahm, uh, Dustin Johnson's reaction on the 18th was sort of just like, well, that was cool. <laughs> I guess I can still win. <laughs> Well, what do you want him to be like, Shooter McGavin? 
Yeah, what do you need? Like, do you need him to do some sort of like cartwheel Shooter. or something like that? <laughs> no, I want him. To, I want him to have a personality. I want him to be like, hey, you know, I get to play golf for a living, and I, I make tons Eddie. and tons of money, and I married into the Gretzky family, so I married into a family that's like even richer than I am, and life is pretty good. So then maybe that's his issue. Maybe he really hates golf, and he's thinking, why do I have to keep playing golf when I have a sugar mama that can just provide for me why am i being forced to continue to play this stupid game <laughs> maybe and you know maybe why it is it's his, his brother is his caddy so maybe he's just his brother trying to needs keep... the money yeah <laughs> yeah he's doing it for the family <laughs> guess maybe he he is an actual robot and his brother has a program <laughs> to just keep playing so he can, can make you money. guess can you guess what his brother's name is yes it's got to be starts with a b no is it is it bj and dj it rhymes with Dustin, sort of. Justin? No. Justin Johnson, no. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's, not, it's Austin Johnson. So they got Dustin and Austin. Wow, that wasn't their most creative moment for the parents, was it? <laughs> no, and who knows? Maybe there's a third brother called Justin. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that surprising. AJDJJJ. That brother's probably his manager, also forcing him to play. <laughs> Maintains the yeah. robot. Well, they were making a big deal out of it yesterday because his brother supposedly really takes the reading the greens seriously. They were speaking about it in a way that, like most, most as if most caddies don't give a shit. As if, as if the player's like, "How do you think this one's gonna break?" And the caddy's like, "I don't know. Just give me my ten percent and leave me alone. I carry the clubs. Shut up." <laughs> but like they supposedly, he has really been working on making sure he has the has the greens measured out perfectly and that then when they're actually taking the putts it's it's kind of him giving the primary read on the putts so he's obviously very focused on keeping his gig as his brother's caddy i mean that's kind of like the ultimate like alpha brother scenario isn't it? it's like you work for me you tell me what to do so i can earn way more than you i mean i'll put it out there i'll happily be dustin johnson's caddy 10 percent of his his prize winnings would be a pretty sweet deal maybe this is like a a free uh like the free britney spears situation dustin johnson is being forced to work against his will by his brothers it's a free dustin johnson 2020 we should start campaigning i like that we're not only playing i like that we're not only speculating that he's being forced to play against his will but we're also speculating that he has other brothers who are also participating in this yeah as far as we know like dj conspiracy but also we're saying he has no free will because he's a robot yes exactly yeah. yeah and wayne gretzky is part of the liberal elite who's just got in on it just to so it's it's the way the liberals are maintaining their control over the golfing world world <laughs> i think that uh pretty much wraps up the current events of sports right no that was pretty much it uh, the right, u.s so open tennis the, oh yeah u.s open in tennis has started today uh, so far no no shocks uh actually zverev who we obviously my my adopted son just be just knocked out Anderson, which was a pretty tough uh, round one matchup for him. Uh, three sets to one. Okay, uh, best, he'll he'll break. The best thing about gambling on um, first round tennis or like qualifier tennis for the Grand Slams is um, you can pick about fifteen players and still get about even money. <laughs> it's such a weird part. Oh, of sometimes tech. sometimes under. 
right? Like, so, but yeah, that was, uh, it'll be interesting. There's no interest the first round. I mean, Diego Schwartzman went out. That was a, it's kind of a surprise. Uh, but other than that, I think certainly on the men's side of the draw, you'll see all of the, all of the main sort of usual suspects get through the first so, couple of rounds pr pretty easily. I, I saw someone got COVID. Was there anyone kind of like highly seated or? I didn't see that, so I couldn't tell you. But no one seems to be missing from the, from the main set of players, but I don't know. The only interesting one, too, uh, this evening, which obviously can't, can't encourage people to watch it because they won't be able to listen to this until it's over, but uh, Isner is playing Steve Johnson, which is a, a good matchup of two big servers, which is always a little bit of fun. Well, let's get to our highly anticipated 2020-2021 Premier League preview. We've got to start. We got to start, Frank, by teaching you how to say Premier. No, Premier. Yeah, Premier. There we go. There we go. Nailed it. You already sound so much more knowledgeable. All right, take All right, two. Here we go. Let's cut that out. And now we'll start our highly anticipated 2020-2021 Premier League preview. Nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So how do we want to jump in? I mean, I guess we, we, we did a little bit of Manchester United already, right? Because we sort of, I touched on the goalkeeping situation. So maybe best to, to start there. Plus, we've also recently discussed the Harry Maguire uh, topic. So we've, we've already done a little bit, of, little bit of a look into two of their key players. So we may as well, may as well wrap up the rest. So new signing, what, confirmed today, uh, Van der Beek from Ajax. What was it, 40, 40 million, I think I saw? I think 44 million, yeah, it looks like. Oh, great, great starting point. Before we even jump in, I would like a nice explanation of how the hell signings and contracts work in European football. Because even though I've been now watching pretty close, I'd say for what, seven, eight years, I still do not understand signings and contracts and transfers and loans. It just makes no sense to me. The, the, the users will now know how we're in depth and detail this Premier League preview when the first question is, what are these things? No, I mean, like, yeah. I understand, obviously, like when, it, when, a, when a person goes on loan or when a person is signed and things like that, but I don't get like how how set contracts are and how they can go on loan and how you can buy out a player and things like that. That's what confuses me. Like a price to okay. get a player. The, the buying out the player is probably, if you're thinking of like the messy contract situation, that's it's probably different. the most, most complicated aspect and it's pretty unusual. So yeah. start from the basic principle, which is historically, uh, you know, up until not that long ago, really, the idea was you signed a contract with a football club and you were basically contracted to them for life. So you didn't sign a sort of two or three year deal. The idea was that you, they had sort of first refusal. You would sign your four year deal or whatever, but if they wanted to sign you again, you had to sign with them again. And so the only way to get out of your contract was for another team to literally buy the rights to you from that team. So they had to reach an agreement with your club who owned you for the rights to then take you on. And where it would then differ from the U.S. again is that when you buy a player, rather than a player being traded and you take on his existing contract, when you're bought, you renegotiate your contract. So, okay, so I guess that would be a good way for lower market teams who don't generate a lot of revenue to have talent come up through the ranks and then sell them basically yeah. and make some profit out of it. 
Exactly. And particularly, so then there was a period where the clubs had all the power. So players basically did what they were told. You've now, over the last 20, 30 years, evolved more into the idea of player power. And so from that, basically, you'd now almost argue that the contracts themselves are meaningless because what will happen is a good player will almost every year or at most two years either demand a new contract or demand to leave. And, but so to touch on that, what will happen is then if I'm, so I'm, you know, director of football or football, or I'm the manager of one team and I want to buy a player from another, you have to start, you can't tap up the player. You can't contact the player directly. You start by contacting his club and trying to work out what fee they want for the player. Once you've agreed a fee in principle with their club, you can then speak to the player about his contractual terms. And he can so, refuse. So, okay, that's what I was going to say. So, for instance, if he doesn't think the contract you're going to offer him is enough, he can refuse. Yeah, and that happens. So you'll have moments where a fee will be agreed for a player and it looks like he's going to leave. And then he decides either from the starters, from the st- they, he's just not interested in the move or they're not able to reach an agreement on the sort of you know, salary or other bonuses and stuff that he wants. And then the other topic, I guess, for you. So then, and, and what really caused that shift was there was a player called Bosman. Uh, and I think it was in the 1980s, the Bosman ruling. Yeah. Maybe early, early night. Yeah. And basically he went to the European court uh, and argued that his, uh, his rights were being infringed by his inability to leave and join another club at the end of his contract. And he won his case. And so now, and that created the idea of, of leaving on what is termed a Bosman ruling. So the idea being that when your contract expires, you are free to go anywhere that you want. So you'll sign your four-year deal. Your four-year contract is done. And now you can sign for any club for free. The exception being players under the age of 24. If you leave on a free transfer, transfer, you then get some compensation from the club that they sign for because it's a way to try and reward the club for having sort of invested in a young player's development. So, so the free transfers are still now always, though, after a four-year contract? Well, I, I mean, four years is a, t- is a typical length of term, but it's when your contract expires. You can sign a okay. contract for us, you know, like, I mean, Fabregas famously signed a 10-year deal with Arsenal. Um, but you know, you'll get players, sometimes players sign one year deals, particularly towards the end of their careers, if they're in their mid thirties and they're, or, or they'll sign a one year deal because they think that they can sort of put themselves in the shop window for a year and get better offers elsewhere. And then in terms of a player going on loan, does that cost the team or does the team make anything from that? Or is that just a way for him to just kind of get some, it can, it can vary. So sometimes, um, players have sometimes clubs have like a contractual relationship with another club where they'll kind of give them players to get uh, match playing experience or something like that before they come back to the parent club so you've got the parent feeder club so that's one way loans work usually say the premier league will loan people out to like the lower leagues of england or other clubs for example but when you have more like high profile players uh sometimes you pay like a fee so you could pay like a loan fee of two million and then you have a kind of percentage play around with their contract. So sometimes a club may say, right, we're still paying all their wages, but he goes to play for you. Or they might say, right, we want you to pay his entire wages during the period and give us uh, X amount of money. Or they might say, well, we'll pay half, you pay half. Uh, then there's other stipulations like 
can't play in cup competitions because you don't want the player to be cup tied. So, you know, if you theoretically needed them back, you could. So loans, loans kind of basically work like that. They're a fixed amount of time. So you can get a month loan, three months, a, a season. Um, there's kind of loads of different angles to a loan in that respect. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, Frank, if you think obviously you've kind of followed Blackburn a little bit more closely because of me over the past few years and every season we're t- taking two or three players on loan from Premier League clubs. Yeah. Typically Blackburn will be playing, uh, paying a fraction of their wages because they can't afford when they're taking a player from city. Yeah. They can't afford to pay his full wages. So they're paying a, uh, you know, they'll, they'll negotiate what the percentage is that they can afford to pay. And then city will pay the rest of that. That makes sense though. Where was this seven years ago? All you have to do is I, ask. I hope there's someone listening yeah. now who they've just started to get into it and they're just like, wow, that was, that was great. Was Thank enlightening. you guys. Enlightening. But yeah, okay, so let's, uh, let's get on with it. We are talking about Man U, right? Yeah, talk about Van Der Beek. Yes. My favorite Dawson's Creek uh, character. <laughs> <Mr>. Van Der Beek. <laughs> what a career arc for him, huh? From 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 teen idol to Manchester United midfielder, it's and hey, he was actually in a he was in a Kesha video as well. Don't forget that. My God, and all while somehow staying the same age. <laughs> I mean, he has a forehead that's just built to be dominant in the air, so it, it's not surprising that he's made it. <laughs> but the um, going back to it, the Dean Henderson coming back to Man U is interesting because it you would probably say that's the first time that De Gea is now going to have a genuinely very good goalkeeper kind of uh, hot on his tails because at the moment kind of De Gea is he's going to be number one but now that Henderson's back and a lot of people really want to see Henderson play because of the England prospects so that's going to be interesting for Manu what they do with their goalkeeper. It's an interesting one too because Dean Henderson has the name of like a 55 year old drunk in a pub it's quite, it's quite difficult for me with his name to think of him as being an elite athlete. De- Dean isn't the best. And also you look at some of the footballers of past with Dean and you've got like Dean Holdsworth, Dean Henderson. They're all just, uh, sorry, not, Dean Saunders. That was the other one. Um, they're all just thuggish footballers. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, there won't be a Dean Hewitt popping out anytime soon. I can say that much. What about Dustin? Dustin Hewitt. Oh, yeah. Dustin, Justin, Austin Hewitts. They're, they're going to be dominating the world of golf 15, 20 years <laughs> from now. Yeah, they did, they did great in tennis. The, exactly. Um, I mean, uh, for me, Manu will be... Manu look good. I, I, I do think they've got a pretty strong... Uh, going to actually, speaking of that, going to the Messi situation, I don't think they'll sign Messi. Uh, I know that they're one of the people, but I, I think Messi's going to Man City, to be honest. So that massively affects kind of what people think about City. But for me, I'd say it's kind of Manchester United and Chelsea, right? That's what I see as kind of like the third and fourth place, you know, who will finish above the other. And the thing for me is like Chelsea have now just signed so many good players. And I think they've signed probably better and they're going to transform a bit. Whereas I still think United have this propensity to mess up or just play terribly or completely 
not implode necessarily, but they've got those kind of players where like Pogba, if they just don't turn up, then Manu just do nothing. I'm, I'm actually excited for Manu next year with like Greenwood and all that, but I, I don't know. I, I think with the signings that Chelsea have, if I'm going to put Manu anywhere, I'll probably put them fourth. Yeah, I mean, I've already given my hot take of the season, right? Which is that my bold prediction is that United finish above Liverpool this year. I Now, I would like to see a few more of their transfer dealings before I really say I'm confident in that selection. Because I was sort of expecting that they might get Sancho, and it seems like that deal is dead in the water, uh, which is a shame, because I do think that if you'd had Sancho, Rashford, Greenwood up front that it would have been a, a terrifying combination of, of pace and ability and also just great for the England, the England side too, to have three key players. Uh, yeah, that would have been so to, cool. Playing together on a weekly basis. But I still think that they are on an upward curve and I think that they could, they'll significantly close the gap to the top two this year, I think. But I also, I'm expecting a little bit of a drop-off from Liverpool. So my, my hot take is United to finish above Liverpool. I mean, I think that's the question, right? Is I, I think your hot take isn't so much on the United front. I think it's on the Liverpool front. And if you guys think that yeah. Liverpool are finally going to start to come back down to reality. I mean, because when I look at the teams, I, I always feel like City has the better team. Uh, I mean, like they're, they have way, maybe not way more talent, but I feel like they always have more talent. But Liverpool just seem to win the big games until you bet on them. But for the most part, they're like always in games and never have really bad matches, but eventually that's got to stop. I mean, eventually they need, they're going to have these like shit matches and, and crappy losses that bring them back to reality. Right. I mean, uh, that's a difficult one. Cause obviously we, we previewed the community shield, uh, which we didn't actually mention in our roundup of the weekend sport, but we previewed, previewed the community shield last week. And I think we were all in agreement that, Liverpool were the most likely victors, even though it's just a sort of glorified friendly and it doesn't really matter, but still that the fact that they have just a, a sort of higher quality of player and a little bit more strength and depth, they should, you would have expected them to win. To me, the fact that they lost the Community Shield is meaningless for the most part, but I do think that it's a representation that since, the, since football restarted, Liverpool have looked beatable in a lot of matches. Yes. And I think that they've probably lost their sense of invincibility, which they definitely had for a while. They did have that sense. And you saw it, right? They would go down in a match and you could tell that it didn't bother them at all, that they just had total confidence that they were going to come back and not only win, but probably win easily. And they did that time and time again. And I think that sense of invincibility is, is gone. And that's going to be the interesting test. If early in the season, they do fall behind in a few games early, or if they say draw a match they didn't expect to draw or lose one to see whether or not they're able to recover and get it. Because if City keep up the pace, you know, like obviously they, they still, they won the season comfortably last year, but if City are just copy and pasting what they did last year to match City on points still requires a really great season. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I honestly think since Liverpool got humped by Watford, what was it in February, maybe? Um, Around then, I, I actually think that they've lost some of the big games. You know, they lost in the FA Cup. They lost in uh, the Atletico Madrid game. I do think that they're actually there for the taking. Don't get me wrong. They're still a really good team. But I, I always think one of the issues with Liverpool is 
the key players when they're not there, I think they are markedly worse. Like when Van Dijk isn't in defense or when, when they haven't got someone up front like Salah or something like that. I, I do feel like they're way more exposed than Man City. And I think that's going to be an issue for them because uh, this season's going to be shorter. So I think it's about five weeks shorter. And at the moment, I mean, the only signing they had was the, um, the kind of Greek, uh, what was it, defender or fullback, I think they signed. Um, I don't know. He's, I, a left, he's a left back, yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I think since that Watford loss, I honestly think Liverpool have been beatable in most of their games. I, I, can't, I can't really pin them for winning the league next year. Um, but then again, Eddie, I guess if you're saying that Man U may finish above them, how high are you putting Man U compared to how low you're putting Liverpool? Uh, I mean, I'm still saying that City are going to win the league. So I'm, in terms of actual placements, I'm putting Liverpool third and United second. In terms of drop-off, obviously, it's not going to just be United getting 30 points better or whatever they would need. It's a combination of United getting, say, 10 to 15 points better and Liverpool getting 10 to 15 points worse. And now I don't even, I don't even think technically that's enough to close the gap that there, that there was between the two of them last year. He's still but, a few points <laughs> off. But it, you, you know what I mean. Great math. It's, it's that, math wizard. You know, yeah, but you know what I mean. It's still that idea that, yeah. that you're, you're going to get Liverpool more down around the 80-point mark. And I think United can get up to about 80 points. Yeah. And the thing yeah. with Man U is they drew... I think it was about 12 games last year. And you think if the team is going to get better and they're more attuned with Solskjaer's playing style, they're better. The chances are that those draws, more of those draws will become wins. Like that's kind of how I see it with teams that draw a lot. They're kind of on the fence about how they're playing, but I, I think Manu will be better. I, I, but then again, well, plus, going... plus you just also have to say, if you compare United 12 months ago to now, even just Mason Greenwood is a huge, huge difference, right? Because obviously he was, he was on the books 12 months ago and he was a, a squad figure. But over the course of the season, he went from being a young player that they expected a lot from in the future to someone that they now expect to deliver and to contribute, right, sort of in this moment. Yeah. And so you just look at that change, that it's not that he is a new signing, but in some respects in comparing their squad of last August to this August, Greenwood is a new signing. Speaking of that. Oh, go on, Frank. I was going to say, you brought up the shift in points with City, you know, gaining 10 to 15 uh, and Liverpool kind of dropping back down a little bit. If what we talked about last week with Messi does come true and he comes to City, do you think that makes them a better team or kind of still at the same level? I mean, obviously, we, we know how good he is, but I mean, the whole idea of having him put in on a whole new team that has no, has never played with him before and potentially knocking down some of your younger talent, you know, that could step up later in the year. Do you think it's going to be a significant improvement getting him or is it kind of just going to keep them at the same pace? I'm a bit torn because I've been one of those people in the camp. I think Messi is the more talented player, but I've always argued that Ronaldo is the better player. And a big part of that to me was always the fact that he was as adaptable in not only the role, but also the leagues that he played in, that each one of which presents a very different challenge. And I've always kind of, 
argued that Messi couldn't make it in the Premier League. Not at least, not that he would be terrible, but that he is not going to be the type of player he was in La Liga just because the pace of play and the physicality is not going to allow him to play in the same way that he does. Now, for that reason, if I were City, I wouldn't sign Messi. I personally would not do it. And I think it also, as we discussed in the last, in the last episode, it's going to get in, the way, get in the way of some of the development of younger players. But obviously having Messi around, I think, you know, if you're going to have a Premier League team sign him, having the one managed by Guardiola is, is the perfect situation for him because he's going to know how to, get, how to get the best out of Messi. So I do think the Messi signing in a way, even though I don't think it would be a good one, probably cements them winning the title this year. Yeah, I mean, last year they finished on uh, 81 points. I, I, it's not a bold prediction, but I do think Man City will go 90-plus this season. Um, I know they did it, uh, what, last year when they, well, year before when they won it, but I do, I do think they'll not easily hit 90 points because that implies that they should be close to 100. But I, I do think they'll have a 90-plus season, and I don't think you'll really see that many teams around them. I'd, I'd probably say they win this league nine points plus. I'd probably go with. I mean, City's big signing of the summer so far is Nathan Ake. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not the biggest Nathan Ake you know, fan, and they may have overpaid for him uh, a little bit because £40 million for a defender is a lot of money, even in today's transfer market. So it might be a little bit much. But the, still, the fact that they are giving themselves another option in central defense and a player who will do the things you need to do in the Premier League in that he won't shy away from a challenge. He's physical. He'll do basic defending well. To me, that's what they need. And to have him, assuming that Laporte is fit this year too, which obviously him missing so much of last season hurt them so much. If you're having him and you know the two of them paired together on a week-in, week-out basis, defensively, you have to expect them to improve as well. What about the uh, Lampard revolution then? So they were obviously banned from signing players, and that's all good. So they've signed Havertz, uh, Werner, which is a fantastic buy, uh, Ziyech, uh, Thiago Silva's obviously just joined as well. I think they look really good. I'm putting them down for third just from the fact that the signings have all made sense. They can already build upon uh, some of the really good players they've had this year, uh, Pulisic, for example. But um, Arisa Belegas just said that he's staying on the strength of what Chelsea have just done in the market as well. I, I think, actually, it's a kind of similar scenario with Arsenal. I, I think Chelsea are on for a really good season. I, I, I put them on the strength of the signings alone and the commitment that Lampard seems to be getting for that kind of play style. I, I see them th- finishing third. I mean, I think Chelsea will be better. And I think overall the, the top of the table is going to be closer and more competitive. So I do think Chelsea and I think in Werner and in Havertz, I think those are two really interesting attacking players to have added to their team. I'm a little bit skeptical about the Thiago Silva signing. To me, it's kind of as if they thought, oh, shoot, we're missing David Luiz. Can we find a replacement for him so that we have another awful aging defender in our, in our back four? But, uh, you know, I think that will be fine. But I, and I don't know, I think he will be, I don't think he will be a key figure for them this season. But I, I agree with you that Chelsea will be better. I just think Manchester United will improve by more than Chelsea improved by. But I, I do expect Chelsea to be closer and to be better and to be, to be, Good to watch this season too, which will be the interesting part of it. 
so we're kind of agreed that the top four looks like those four basically yeah for i can't see anyone else finishing in the top four no actually for me the race behind them is i actually think a little bit more interesting because you had some teams last year that um massively overperformed i mean sheffield united for a start were um favorites to go down and I'm, I'm not suggesting that they're going to like repeat it this year but i actually think the the transitions that you see the, uh, sorry the the contrast you see between arsenal and spurs is actually going to be a really interesting play out next year and I, I i think just for the the kind of um prediction here i i think arsenal will finish fifth this season is what i'm going to say i just the great thing about Arsenal recently for me is that they just beat Liverpool in the Community Shield and okay say what you want about the the quality or the the care of that league but they still beat a big team when they're in front of them they in the FA Cup last year they beat Man City uh, with a really good style of football like very kind of direct and counter-attacking they soaked up pressure for a team that notoriously no one cares for defensively they have so many calamities but then they beat Chelsea in the final as well uh, they beat Liverpool uh, I think in the middle at like just after they beat City in the FA Cup they beat Liverpool in the Premier League I, I just think Arteta has he's prevented those defensive collapses and he's got a real strength of mentality going on with that team and I think all of the noises coming out about Aubameyang signing is really positive. It looks like they're signing um, Magalhaes, which will be a really good signing defensively. The only thing is they look pretty weak in the center of mid for me. I, I just think Gundozi, um, uh, what you call him, uh, Shaka and uh, Torreira just, uh, just aren't cutting it. But then that's what's interesting is that the people they're being linked with are where that weakness is, that kind of like playmaker. So like Thomas Partey, um, even Coutinho has been linked at the moment. And I just feel like with all of their youth players coming through, like Saka, uh, Martinelli had a really good season as well. You can tell I'm an Arsenal fan, by the way. Uh, Willock, uh, Nicotia as well. I, I just think they're on... I, honestly, this is probably the first genuine feel-good factor I've had around Arsenal in over five years. And saying, oh, well, fifth. But I, I do think that's that's where they need to be this season. Uh, they need to be showing progress and getting back into Europe through the league rather than through the cup. But um, yeah, I, I just, I have a really good feeling about Arsenal next year. Can they break top four? I'm not so sure, but if it gels and it keeps gelling the way it is, they may be able to kind of pick off Manuel Chelsea. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a shame that fifth doesn't have a significance really because it, it's going to be a great battle, I think, between Arsenal, Spurs, even Wolves, Leicester. I mean, there's there's a good amount of teams up there that can all compete for that fifth spot. And it'd be really cool if they were competing for something. I mean, obviously, yeah, getting top five is great. But, you know, to not get Champions League, that would be, that would be much better. But, yeah, I mean, the big thing – so I did some looking into the Spurs and – the fan base just, is, just to just to so we don't as another part of your process just spurs not the spurs i thought i said spurs i've been looking into the spurs yeah oh sorry unless, you're, unless you're trying to buy some some uh, more accessories for your cowboy boots uh, i thought i had said spurs i'm sorry i apologize you've taught me that 
many moons ago. But uh, with my ear down to the Spurs fan base, they are hot on uh, the Matt Doherty signing. Did you hear them clinking as they were walking walking towards you? Yep, I did. I did. I heard it. Yep. There's been like, yeah, the, the tweets have been through the roof about that signing um, and how he's going to fit perfectly in that system. Um, so that's a big one. And they're all healthy now again. I mean, that was a big knock on them last year is that, what, Kane was out for forever and then Sun was out for a decent amount of time. So having for that now, team right. back and healthy. For now, for now, a lot right. of teams, a lot of teams are healthy before the season starts. So I mean, obviously you have, but it's going to well, be. Well, listen, when, when we when you send Sun back to South Korea to do basic training, there's a risk he comes back <laughs> injured or shot. But yeah, at least he came back alive. Not only did he come back alive, what went wrong? Not only did he come back alive, he came back as the top marksman. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump's probably an Arsenal supporter. He was probably desperately trying to start World War III while Song was <laughs> was doing his military service. Wow! But the yeah, there we go. There's there's our scoop that, for the that's day. That's a real long way for the president to make sure that Arsenal have a successful season, right? <laughs> With Donald Trump, would you rule it out, Sam? I would rule out the complexity of the plan <laughs> rather than the plan itself. <laughs> but he he. he Here's my issue. I think with both Arsenal and Spurs, I need to see more of what they do over the remainder of the window because to me, both of them lack a lot of strength and depth. And so I need to see what they, they you know, they all, they both have the makeup of a good squad with Spurs. I see no reason to be that much more optimistic about their outlook this year than last year. I think the chances of getting into top four is gone to me. The Spurs now I kind of mentioned every team so far as being in you know, a kind of upwardly, up with apart from Liverpool, but but moving in the right direction, and to me, Spurs is the first team that I hit in the table where I think that they missed their chance to establish themselves as one of the genuinely big clubs in England and in Europe, and they may never get that opportunity again. Is that and, like two years ago when they were really straddling like second for a long period of time, and they had like yeah. everyone firing all cylinders, and they just did not spend in that yes. window. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, that. obviously, they, they missed the stadium. chance. When, when, when Leicester won the Premier League, obviously, Spurs, that was the year Spurs should have won it, really. And that's not to take away from Leicester, but realistically, that was the year. You, if you told Spurs, look, all of the other big teams are going to really mess up, you have to win the league that year. So the fact that they did... Arsenal as well. I remember yeah. Arsenal being uh, top at one point, maybe like early January or something. And it was, yeah. So there's that. And then also, I just think any way you're coming towards the window is closing on some of the players they have in their squad. You know, Harry Kane, if he, even if he hangs around for the rest of his career, you're not talking another decade. So you don't have long to build around Harry Kane. And to me, I just need to see. And the other thing I'll say, too, is the only thing I, you touched on when you speak about Arsenal, I think you're right in that what Arteta at least has done for now is he's got all of those players to buy into his approach. So Obama Yang and Lacazette and all of them look really happy playing for him, even when they're being asked to do defensive work, which is surprising because I think you would say that that squad is packed full of players who love to sulk. And so the fact that he's got them in a mindset where they're yep. not sulking at all is impressive. But I want to see whether or not that changes if in October or November they are already out of the title race and sort of struggling a little bit. Will they revert to their old habits 
with Spurs, I just can't see unless Harry Kane single-handedly and and I guess Son as well with him just drag Spurs through. Because the thing you can still say about Spurs, they're good enough to beat all but you know four or five teams in the league. So if they just consistently get pulled through matches by those couple of players, they might keep themselves in it. But I just I I just don't see how they do it. Would you put Spurs over Arsenal then, both of you, or Arsenal over Spurs? I've, I'm going to have Arsenal fifth, but in but okay. but signings could change that. I, I'm put, I'm penning, I'm penciling them in fifth and sixth, and I'd like to kind of, you know, when the window closes in six weeks' time or whatever, I'd like to go back and think. Right? Have they done? The, have they made signings that I think address the the obvious needs that they have? Yeah, I think Arsenal above them, but this actually, Eddie, since we're on. Spurs, this brings up my top five. And I didn't want to give you an easy one and do, well, both of you an easy one and do top five goal scorers from last year. So I'm going to go top five assists last year. Spurs assists or no, Premier no. League. Premier League, top five. <laughs> I, I'm going to be so, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be so off on this one because I, in a way, I. It's a tough one. I don't even know where to start. And I, and I said Spurs because tied for fifth is Sun with 10 that's assists surprising. Yeah, okay, that's surprising. Yeah, that's why I thought it was surprising. I'm going to say that Trent Alexander-Arnold is in the top five. Yes, Trent Alexander-Arnold is number two with 13. And then Kevin De Bruyne? Yes, clear number one. 20 assists last year, seven more than Arnold. Three and four is going to be tough. Um, Three, four, and then you have a tie for fifth with Sun. So. Uh, Sané at Liverpool? Oh, no, f- wrong Liverpool player. Oh, Firmino? Also wrong Liverpool <laughs> player. <laughs> and the funny part is there's two left. Salah? <laughs> yeah, Salah, yep. And Liam. Robertson? Yep, and Robertson, good. And you're missing one more that was tied for fifth. It's another city player. Another city player. Be able to get it. Sterling. No. Uh, It's not. um, How do you pronounce his name? Like Zivkovic or whatever he's called. No, I didn't play enough. I didn't play. Not enough. I don't think. Uh, I'll give you a hint. There um, announced plans for a statue built for him. Oh, Aguero? No. <laughs> David Silva? Silva. <laughs> Wait, they've announced yes. a statue for David Silva? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like for next Fuck. year. You didn't see that? He no, I didn't see actually, that. But didn't David, wasn't David Silva the first signing of the, the kind of new consortium, wasn't he? I think. So I guess. And look, don't don't get me wrong. David Silva is a very good player, and he's been a big part of what City have achieved. So I'm not I'm not knocking that. I'm not trying to say, but statue. Like if I looked at that City side, I would have built maybe the statue for Aguero because he has the defining moment where you can you can have the statue tied to the the uh, the goal against QPR to win them the title. David Silva. I mean, at that rate, you're going to have to build a statue to Kevin De Bruyne if he hangs around. You're going to have to build a statue to Aguero. They're just going to have like 25 statues outside of the ground. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe they figured out that they're not going to have any fans in the stadium for a long time. So, so they're, they're just, just going to make statues. 
Yeah, just gonna put them in. <laughs> it's going to be like, I can imagine outside the Etihad just be like the terracotta army. No, no, not outside. Inside. <laughs> what they so it, <laughs> yeah, so instead of having fans in the seats, you're going to be looking and be like, why are there 155 David Silvers watching this match? You'll be like, oh, well, they just decided he was... so creeped out. We, they, can they only hope, we can only hope that the artist is the same one that did the Ronaldo statue. He should be commissioned to do every European football statue for the rest of time. Well, actually, City would probably be smart to use him because then they could just build one statue and then they could have all the players think that it was built for them. <laughs> you know, so, so you'll have like Raheem Sterling being like, I'm so proud. I've got a statue of myself outside the stadium and Aguero will also be thinking it. and David Silva will also be thinking it. So it might be the right move. Top six, we, we're all pretty agreed, like, what it looks like. For me, um, the teams that finish kind of behind them are also pretty interesting as well, like Wolves. Well, Leicester, I'm putting way below. But also, like, Burnley, Sheffield United, because Leicester... Can I, can I, can I jump in quickly for just my, my one other big hot take? Go on. Sheffield United will be in a relegation battle this year. I wouldn't actually disagree that much with it. Uh, now that Dean Henderson's gone as well, uh, they don't, they're not the kind of, you're not going to think that because we just got like a, what is it, top eight? I can't remember where they finished, like eighth, ninth, top 10 either way. Um, they're not going to spend. They're going to consolidate in the Premier League. So as far as they're concerned, I don't think they care if they finish 16th. They just wouldn't want to spend the money that would then jeopardize them if they did get relegated. So I wouldn't actually disagree with you. I think they'll plummet. Uh, I also think Burnley... Well, don't, don't, don't say they, had, they haven't spent, because they did spend £18.5 million pounds on Aaron Ramsdale from Bournemouth. So okay. that's one that we'll be speaking about for years to come. But Yeah, I think, I think Sheffield United will drop. Uh, I think it was, it's that second season syndrome, right? A uh, new team comes in, they're a bit of an unpredictable... You know, No one really knows how to play them. And they just managed to keep that momentum going and stay up there. And I think that's exactly what happened with them. Uh, I'd probably Burnley as well. I I think they overachieved last season. So I imagine them dropping off. I think the team looks like it's kind of aging a little bit. If they keep Nick Pope, great. Uh, I think he got nearly 15 clean sheets last year. So he had a great season. But I, I can't really see them being top 10 this time. And Wolves is a really interesting one because I think they played something like 60 games last year and they won't have to do that this year because, of, um, because they're not in Europe. But they've lost, they've lost Matt Doherty, as, as Frank mentioned. And if I was a Wolves fan, I'd think anything close to last year is a good season. I don't know what you guys think, but I, I can't imagine them thinking, right, we're spending 30, 40 million now and kicking on. I, I would say they aim for exactly what it was and that would be considered good. I think Wolves drop down into a mid-table finish this year. So I think they'll be in the ninth to 12th range. And I don't think they'll ever be seriously challenging for European spots. Well, I mean, that, that pretty much is exactly where then we would put, you know what I mean? Like we already said who the, the top six seven are right so basically you're saying they're the next best at that point yeah I, and but significantly behind so i obviously think the top six so finishing arsenal and spurs are quite a bit ahead of the rest i think leicester are the 
the bridge between then the mid table and the top half. And but I still think Leicester are are behind Spurs and Arsenal by by quite a bit. And then I think it's a bit of a drop off to what I guess I'd classify as the third tier then. And then have the fourth tier be the teams that I think will be fighting uh to stay up. Leicester worries me. Like I looked at their form and they've won four of their last seventeen in the Premier League. I just I don't know. I just think, I I honestly just think that the Madison um Vardy got found out at that point. I think teams realize that they just need to drop a bit deeper, stop letting them uh, get behind you with strikers and I I think it showed fundamentally and well we we all know my opinion of Vardy. So <laughs> we don't need <laughs> we don't need to go Eddie, over that one again. Eddie, what are the odds of him being top goal scorer again? Well, what do you, are you put his at? odds at? What do you? I, I don't want to. I don't want you to look on a website. I want you to. Give I, I would probably odds. give him probably twenty to one. I'd say thirty to one. Would be fair in my mind. The only thing I think that works in Vardy's favor is that actually a lot of the big teams don't have clear dominant goal scores, and their goals get spread out between a lot of their attacking players. So when you look at City, for example, a you're going to get split time between some of the you know like Aguero and. Uh, Jesus, and then you also even have rotating with Sterling and with Mares, and and then say Messi comes into that mix, and you go to Liverpool, they kind of spread their goals out a little bit between Mane and and Salah, and you kind of look at all the top teams, with maybe I guess the the exception is Arsenal with Aubameyang, and even the weird thing too with a lot of those teams, their best goal scorers often don't even take their penalties. It's the other aspect too. So the in the race for the top goal scorer, you're missing out on five to ten goals a season just through penalty taking. So Vardy is, you know, the thing that works in his favor is he's the best place to be a prolific goal scorer of all the sort of good players on some of the better teams. He's got the opportunities. He's I mean, to me, to the, the like, he's what? Fourteens. Yeah, yeah, he's fourteen. I, anywhere from fourteens to eighteens. Yeah, I would put it. Scorer. I mean, to me, the likely top scorer this season, right, is Harry Kane. I'm assuming he's favorite. He's not. Uh, Salah is favorite. Then oh. Kane. Then Aubameyang. Because Aubameyang also takes Arsenal's penalties, right? What What odds are What odds are for Kane? Eleven They're to close. two. I saw. Yeah. So Salah is okay. like five, five or six, and then Kane's about six. Okay. I mean, I would, assuming Kane is healthy, I would, I would, I would go for Kane. Would you take uh, Werner, 9-1? to one? No. All right, so again, Eddie, I, Eddie simple, let me throw this out he, at you. Does he take penalties for Chelsea? I don't know if he will. So that's, or, that's a yeah. huge question mark. Exactly. So I guess let, let me throw this out at you then. Would you take Werner, Sterling, or Mane over Vardy? Because they're all ahead of him in the market. Take Sterling. Uh, the only one I would have doubts over probably is Mane just because even though he's had moments of being quite a prolific goal scorer, he also has quite long drive spells. Um, but I would put, I would happily take, if it was a, if you made it a sort of head to head, just match bet. And I get to take either Werner versus uh, Vardy or Sterling versus Var- Vardy. I would take, I would take on Vardy with either of them. So Werner's almost not two to one, probably like, three to two over him you could get like 
you know what I'm saying? You'd probably get three to two on Vardy versus evens or odds on on Varner. Yeah, and I think that's I would I would I would take that if that was a match bet going. I would I would take that. And I guess we, in a way, because we can do club by club still, I guess the easier way now to skip down is maybe let's flip it because we're doing a bit of prediction. Who do we think will go down? And we can work our way then back up the table from on the basis of who we think will, will be in the drop zone. So, Sam, who, who are your picks for, for going down and why? I think West Brom are down. Um, you can always guarantee one of the... Um, promoted clubs will go down and I, I just think they're the weaker um so i'd probably go for west brom um actually kind of difficult this year I, I don't think there's any club where i would consider them pretty bad i think I'll second west brom with you i think i'll, I'll third west Brighton. brom and my just just we can wrap west brom up the, the most damning indictment of west brom situation right now is they are currently in a battle to sign a defender with blackburn and <laughs> the fact that they are competing in the transfer market with Blackburn Rovers yeah. for players having just been promoted, that the two of them are fighting it out over a 900,000 pound player from Wigan. That is, those are worrying signs for West Brom. And he might end, who knows? I'm, I'm very hopeful that he goes to Blackburn and I hope that he turns out to be a Premier League quality defender. So maybe this will look bad when it looks like West Brom got this absolute bargain by signing a Premier League quality defender for 900,000 pounds. But it would still worry me as a West Brom supporter that the club is looking down into League One to sign players and to sort of add a fire sale from a club in administration as the way of they're going to figure out how to stay in the Premier League. That's not a great sign. Um. Uh, this is going to be my hot take, so this might be my slightly controversial one. But I, I think Newcastle could go down. I think the um, takeover situation has really messed them up and the fact that it hasn't gone through and there is so much pessimism now that it is still Mike Ashley. Regardless of the manager they've had, so Steve Brees at the moment, even like Benitez a couple of years ago, they always seem to just hang around that 40-point mark. They haven't signed anyone. They ended last season pretty pathetically. I think they got to saying like two points from six games. Um, and I th- think I read a stat the other day that their top goal scorer in all competitions was um, Almiron with eight goals. And then it was John Joe Shelby with six. So they don't have an out-and-out goal scorer as well. So I don't think they'll spend because we all know Mike Ashley, he won't spend. And now we know he also wants to sell the club and it doesn't look like he's going to. They're not going to strengthen. I don't think Steve Bruce is a strong manager. They don't have a good goal scorer. So I'm, I'm, I think I'll probably put Newcastle down there. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I don't know if Newcastle would be in, my, in the drop zone for me, but they're definitely going to be there or thereabouts. I will pencil in Fulham as a, as a team oh, I think are going. Took, you took mine. I was going to say Fulham. I Just think. made it in. They're going back down. I watched a lot of Fulham as as a supporter of a club in the championship. I watched a lot of Fulham's matches last year and it looked like they should have dominated the championship based on the players they had available. And they are so frail and they can be bullied. And that worries me if I'm them because they're going to be outplayed by the teams at the top of the table and they might be outfought by the teams at the bottom. So I'm, I'm going to put Fulham in there. I love when you use frail as a description because I just picture just these 85-year-old men running around trying to kick like, the ball like and their legs just breaking off. <laughs> I feel like we have this, this discussion every week now. I know because it just cracks me up every time. It never gets old. I'm going to have such a good image. 
I'm going to put Villa in there rather than Fulham. Um, I think they were lucky uh, to stay up last year and I don't think they will do much. Um, and especially if Grealish goes, which it doesn't look like he's going to now because that was a, um, that was a man you target and it doesn't look like that's happening. Um, I would put, it's kind of Villa or Fulham for me as a toss-up, but uh, I think I'll go Villa. Um, what's interesting is how well do we think Leeds will do, seeing as we all don't seemingly have them down as relegation candidates. Like, are we saying that they're going to have like a Sheffield United kind of year, or are we just saying that 15th and they're fine and they don't really do much because they're spending big, they've got a good setup? Well, I'm going to go against Villa on you on that one. I'm now a huge Villa supporter. Mostly just a Jack Grealish hair supporter. But I think last year, I mean, last year they spent a good amount of money on new recruits. And it seems like they're ready to do the same. I guess the issue is, do they want to come to Villa and play? And I think that's always, you know, you can spend as much money as you want. But if you don't want to go to play there, you're not going to go there, right? So, but I think they'll have Grealish back. They'll have his beautiful, beautiful hair back. So that'll be nice. Um, is it is it just but, the hair? Is it more the fashionable aspect of Grealish here, or the footballing that, competency? That under, if I had his hairline, I would do that undercut no problem. It's just the way, it, like when he's running, it's just the way it flops as he's playing. It's never out of place. It's always perfect. The whole like after the match, it looks like he had just done it up. It's it's amazing. And he got called up th- this week or yesterday today actually, right? He got called up today yeah. for his first. It's, it's deserved. He, he he deserves to be in the England squad. I, I'm not sure how much they'll utilize him or play him, but it, it's it's always a little bit difficult sometimes to pick like a standout player in a pretty bad club um, because you can be more outshone in a very good team as a worse player, but you obviously look better because of the players around you. Whereas I think Grealish has to stand out a lot for him to be selected. So I don't know. I I. I think Villa could be really strong candidates to get relegated between them and Fulham. I, but I think they I, need to sign someone. I think that's the big – if they can get a few good signings, then maybe they'll be okay. But right now, they really haven't signed anybody. Yeah, their issue is that they signed big last year, as you touched on. Um, yeah. And they survived on the last day. Barely, <laughs> barely uh, so, survived. Thanks to Grealish. Think, <laughs> yeah, well, thanks to VAR as well. They had some very good decisions go their way. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I panic about Aston Villa because I actually tipped them last year to do kind of like a top half kind of thing. But um, yeah. So who are your top three again for going out? Uh, Newcastle are going to be my hot take, almost like Eddie's hot take of um, Liverpool finishing below Man U. Uh, West Brom, I think, are a lock to go down. And I'm going to go Villa slight favourites against Fulham to get relegated. So I'm probably, I guess what I'm doing there is saying Fulham will finish 17th. Yeah. And then Eddie, what are your top three for going out? Uh, For me, I mean, I've already said that I think that West Brom and Fulham will go down. And I'm going to stick to my guns on this one and I'm going to say Sheffield United. I wouldn't say that with total confidence, but I think that they're going to be in and around the relegation zone. So, you know, if we're going to have a couple of hot takes as my predictions. And then that way, if I'm right, I can claim to be a genius. So I've got United above Liverpool and I'll have Sheffield United going down as well. And if both of those come right, 
then the listeners will be flocking to our podcast for our predictions next year. Coupled with Sam the Squid, we've got some serious firepower within our tips and picks and random picks. So what about the chances of a bigger team going down like Everton? Everton pissed me off as a club. I, I, I treat them at the moment in the same kind of ilk as um, Newcastle. They're a big club. They've got a really good history. Uh, and then this um, business owner, we'll see the Iranian guy, bought them like five years ago. And I honestly think, I mean, obviously they've had some good signings in there. Like um, Lukaku was one of the first signings they had. Um, Pickford, obviously, um, slightly worse season last year but still like a fantastic signing but they have spent and wasted so much money i mean like when you look at like a wobi had 34 million uh tucson i think it was like search tucson was the player and he was like 27 million uh, sigurdsson cost 43 million over uh, carlson i mean in fairness he scored it was like 12 or 15 goals um last season but he was 52 million and you think about what you can compare get for that kind of money at the moment i i just think they they're terrible at signings they spent have spent so much money over the past four years and they actually in my opinion have regressed and then you think on top of that the quality of managers that they've had over the past five years uh kerman is now at barcelona um martinez when the guy took over in 2015 is now uh, widely regarded as doing incredible work at Belgium. Um, and they've currently got Ancelotti, who is one of the biggest name managerial names in football, regardless of whether the kind of uh, the best, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but certainly one of the biggest. And yet they spend all this money and they do nothing. They do absolutely nothing. They won't get relegated, but I, I could see Everton, I could see Everton having another poor season. I don't know if that's relegation worthy. I don't know if that's anything, but I mean, they finished what 12th last year, right? I mean, yeah. just under top 10. So you, I think you they'll be in drop back down to 14th, 15th. And then, and then they're I, there, right? They're close. I don't think they'll be involved in the relegation fight no. at all. I think they're going to be, I'm, I mean, in a way my hand is sort of forced because of the way that I've made my other predictions that I have to have <laughs> someone, I have to have someone coming out of the bottom half of the table yeah. into the top half. Yeah. And to me, that's Everton. There's not mm. a lot of reason to believe that. I just think they do have a lot of talent in their squad and I'm sure that they will spend because there is money available to them. I'm sure they will spend more money in the window. So there'll probably be one or two other decent signings. Now, decent on paper, whether or not they're decent when they actually get in the squad, who knows? Because as Sam touched on, I mean, I think the, the thing, what you said there, Sam, though, is some of those players you named, when they signed them, you would have thought that they were going to be great signings. Not Iwobi and not Tosin, but, you know, some of the other ones you really thought, wow, these are these are players you would expect to be at a top six club. And... So it will be interesting to see, but I, I think they'll, I'm putting Everton in the ninth to 12th bracket and I think they'll finish ninth or 10th. So then what do you guys have a hot take as to a team, I guess Sheffield United would be yours, right? A team that finished well last year, that's going to drop significantly. Oh yeah. And I think Sam, Sam sort of agreed with me, I think so. Yeah, um, I think most of the teams you saw up there, but actually, f f because we've got a lot of teams dropping off and we haven't really picked many, so Eddie's picked Everton, I'm going to pick South. 
Southampton. I, I think they finished last season really well. I think ever since that 9-0 drubbing of Leicester, they have looked a completely different team. Uh, Danny Ings has just recommitted as well. And when you look at the betting for the top goal scorer, he's actually, I think, ninth or 10th, which is crazy for uh, like a Southampton player to be up you're there. Right. I, no, I no, think no. So. Sam, I, Sam, you're right. That's just crazy. That's just crazy. <laughs> I could just stop there, right? The, you've got all these players like Messi might join his league and yet Danny Ings is up there in the betting. But for me, I, I think Southampton will break top 10 this year. Um, and actually, I, I kind of think Leeds might. I, I always think there's something, there's always a club that does something and I just feel Leeds. Uh, so if I'm going to have a couple of all kind of, well, Leeds weren't in the league last year, but I think Leeds will be top 10. I think Southampton wow. will be top 10. And I think Everton will have a poor season. But when I say poor, I think they'll just do exactly what they've done and they'll finish like 12th, 13th. Um, Palace, we haven't really touched on. I think it really matters if Zaha stays there, um, whether they're kind of 12th or 16th or 17th. Um, yeah, so if I'm going to have two teams that uh, I'm going to put in the top 10 because I've got so many dropping out, um, it's going to be Southampton and Leeds. Leeds is a pretty hot think, take. Uh, yeah, I think I probably disagree with you on both of those, but particularly Leeds. <laughs> I, th- I, yeah, I, I think Leeds will be right in the thick of the relegation battle. I think they are the of the promoted sides. They're the best uh, positioned to have a good year. So I get what you're saying there, but still, I, I don't. I think they'll struggle to stay up. I think they will stay up because I think there are teams that are worse than them, but I think they'll stay up because of the fact that there are teams that are worse than them rather than them being good. Mm. Have they had any decent signings since they've moved up to try and bolster yeah. the squad a little bit? I, I mean, the marquee signing is Rodrigo, right? They, they just signed him for 28 million. I think it was really well sought after player from Valencia. Um, I think Man City were looking at a year or two ago as well. So, that's a really yeah. good signing. They need more, but it's a really good start, I guess. And they signed Helder Costa too, didn't they? From from Wolves. Ah, maybe so. So yeah, yeah they they've, they've they've done some decent stuff in the transfer market, but and that's why I think they will be. And they also they they have a system a little bit in a in the Wolves style, right? Of a team being promoted who play in a way that they think can carry on to a higher level and Leeds have put in place a system that now it might fail miserably in the sense that it might just get played off the park by better teams, but you at least know that they are going to be able to score goals at this level and that they're, they're sort of well-organized and that they'll be, they'll be creative. Now, whether or not creative leads to results, we'll, we'll have to see. So, I mean, that, Kind of touched on everyone, I think. Is anything else to sum up? Or yeah, I mean, there's one or two. We, teams we didn't talk we, about we, Burnley. Yeah, <laughs> we, completely, I mean, Sam, we completely blanked on Burnley. I, I, I kind of, I touched on them. I don't think they're going to spend much. It's important they keep Pope. Uh, Rodriguez stays fit, um, but ultimately, I think that's another team that's going to be around that kind of like bottom of the th- like kind of middle of third tier, basically. They're going to be yeah. anywhere between like ninth and 15th. I would agree. And then same, we didn't really speak a lot about Palace. Um, or Brighton. I think, 
yeah, Brighton. I don't think we've mentioned at all. Uh, Palace. <laughs> I think Palace. I think will be in the in. They'll be fighting relegation again. But I just think that they, with Zaha, assuming they keep him, that's just that's a match winner that will keep them up because he's going to help them picking up enough points. And then I also they signed a they signed a player from QPR, a young kind of player who's who's sort of earmarked for a future England career. And so that can be an interesting one to add to their their midfield and attacking flair. So I think so, Crystal Palace will have enough. So one of my friends is going to be furious at me because there is one team we have not discussed. One team. And I will consider them in the same um, category as Everton and Newcastle. And that Who is, is West Ham. Oh yeah, we haven't mentioned West Ham at all. I mean, I'm going to put West Ham. In, I'm going to put West Ham into the improving category for me. Uh, not not by a, a ton, but I, I was impressed by their. They seem to sort of figure things out a little bit, and I and I'm going to put West Ham in the category of of not being involved in the relegation fight this year. That kind of maybe I'm the just 14th. Yeah, may, maybe I'm remembering ninth. this. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but I feel like they were really on and off. Like they played yeah, some good that's matches, so and then and then they would just fall apart for like six, and then they'd come back, and people would say, "Oh, you know, they're they're playing well again," and then they just fall apart again. Like they weren't consistent at all. So maybe if they can clean that up. Although I don't think have they had any signings. I didn't see any when I looked through. As of as of yet, no. Yeah, they've got the so, classic problem though, where they've. They- spent big over the last couple of years and maybe there's a semi sort of retraction again spending big when it hasn't worked out but there are also plus also there we also have to factor in when we're predicting all these clubs spending right is that their revenues are are dropping so they're they're all having to approach and for a few of them too you're having to work out whether or not if you have furloughed any staff it looks really bad that you furloughed some staff two or three months ago, and now you're bringing in a player for twenty million pounds to play on one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week. It's not a great look. No, I think Arsenal sacked about thirty people after they furloughed them, and obviously, then you know they're talking about these like mega monies, and it it is no good look at all. But yeah, no, it's just simply, but it's not a good look in the slightest. So. It's think, a tough one, right? Because you're going to get pressures from your your supporters. Like you're not going to win a lot of points in a way if you're a club that either did furlough people and then now says, "Look, we can't sign people because that would be wrong," or even if you didn't furlough people, if you make the argument of, "Look, we didn't furlough anyone because we thought it was important to pay all of these people their full wages," but the cost of that is that we, in addition to losing revenue, we spent a lot of money that maybe some of our competition didn't spend or money that we really didn't have. And now if you're saying, well, we're not going to spend much this summer because of those facts, you're not going to get a lot of sort of brownie points from your supporters for being the good guys in the league. Brownie points. Thought, I thought Frank might enjoy that expression, so just threw that yeah. one in there. Not, not a big brownie fan. Sorry, you're not going to get a lot of nacho points. How's that? Should we... These, these points are nacho Why, why would you go from brownie to nacho? <laughs> You should at least keep it in the dessert ballpark. Well, I should have called them Boy Scout points, I guess, really, right? I think that's the origin <laughs> of the phrase. But, but, but yeah, no. Uh, but, uh, yeah, some donut points. We'll, we'll, we'll have the podcast uh, 
I'll accept ranking that. system will have donut points, and I'll give that. I'll say, I'm giving Sheffield United zero Eddie donut points going into this season, and I'm just saying that that uh, in general, supporters are not going to be handing out a lot of donut points because you're being financially responsible with the management of the club, and that's part of the problem in football. All right, sounds good. Any any last minute predictions? Things you need to get off your chest? Well, I will say we haven't addressed it, right? But there's probably going to be a noticeable drop in my audio quality for anyone out there who's listening. So I will say I'm in the midst of a move. And you know what they always say? The best time to move is during a pandemic. So I've... (laughs) Oh, I know that well. (laughs) Yeah, you know, blood on the streets by property. You know, there is that expression. Now, unfortunately, I'm not buying anything. But I, I am say, renting. But you're renting. <laughs> I am renting and relocating, and uh, and and fortunately, that means that my not only is it a pain to physically move all of the stuff, but also switching all of the services over is not as smooth as it might have been outside of a a pandemic. And so, COVID nineteen restrictions mean that I may not have uh, Wi Fi at home for. For, for a week or two and so my my audio quality may have dropped to a cell phone and a and a headset so now you're just you're just like a a call center i'm not even a call center i'm not even sam's call center quality right because sam had one of those <laughs> call center headsets i am literally on a apple provided heads uh, earbuds and uh and <laughs> microphone so that's that's what we're going on now love on the streets buy property I love how you've just adapted it to the modern age where it's like rent property. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Virus in the spit, rent something else. All right. Well, that wraps it up. I think uh, Thursday, or well, we'll drop it on Friday, we'll do an NFL preview. And then get ready for return of Premier League and the NFL. It's going to be an and that's, exciting. This will be my preview. teaser. Who will be my Sheffield United of the NFL? <laughs> I know mine. And let me just say that my, my biggest drop maybe remi- rhymes with Fermar Maxim. <laughs> oh, speaking of, uh, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Oshin Murphy today. And he said that there's a horse coming up that's going to race, I think, this weekend that he really likes called Mahomes. So keep that one on the radar. All right. Just, we'll keep, we can maybe comment. preview that along with the, along with the uh, NFL season then. Yeah. I want the odds of Mahomes to win NFL MVP and the 2000 guineas next year. Here's a, I guess let's wrap up with this thing because we've had – a lot of debate as we're talking about horse racing now. Uh, we're obviously dedicating months and months of content to the build-up to the arc, and Enable is racing this weekend huh. in the September Stakes, not facing a lot of opposition, it has to be said. So it's another one of those situations where all it can probably do is blot its copybook. I don't think, even if it romps home, I don't think you'd argue that it means anything significant. But uh, Frank, you've been doubting Enable all season. Enable's one to five to win the September Stakes at Kempton this weekend. Are you taking it on with the field? What with the field being 
three donkeys and a trainer who's deciding to run by foot? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, the interesting one, right, is that uh, Galston put a uh, logician into yeah. the in there, but it's not been declared. But there was that I mean, moment it, where it looked like he might be pitting actually two of his better stable options against each other, which would have been, I would have actually said, had that happened, my confidence in enable for the arc would have significantly dropped because it would have been such a bizarre move from Gosden that it might have been a reflection of the fact that he doesn't think enable is going to be up to much in the remainder of the season and he was using these races to prepare other horses for other things so the fact that he has not declared a logician for this race makes me not more confident in enable but certainly meant that i avoided something that might have made me doubt some of my confidence i mean one to five is short but my only worry would be that they're sending enable out there and they're they're telling Dottori, we just want you to give it a good gallop and hit a time and not push it, push it. And if there happens to be a horse that just runs the race of its life, don't overexert and just save your energy for the arc. But I don't see that happening because I don't think there is a horse in there that could even come close to that. So I, I think you have to, I mean, I would be shocked if Enable loses to these horses. I mean, are they, I don't think there's even a, like a real true group one winner in there. I don't think there's a horse that could, should push it close on close, even if we say that it was 85% for the Eclipse. And that, you have to assume then that it's at least 90% now, right? But, but yeah. should be approaching 100%. There's no real yeah, excuse. And, and I mean, I think that's the be. thing. Like, it, they probably don't want to blow the tank, but I don't think there's anything in there that's going to even come close to starting to empty the tank. So I don't even think I don't even think that should be a concern because it's still a month from the arc. So it's not like if it has a very taxing run this weekend. But we went through it this. Doesn't have it's to... older. The metabolism is changing. It doesn't eat the same anymore. It's a very <laughs> maybe finicky would... horse now. Maybe, but maybe that's the argument for really uh, pushing it through it through its gears. Um, but I, I don't think it will need to. I don't think it will realistically need to get out of fourth gear to win this race quite, quite comfortably. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why we even bother because Gaeth's going to win the arc no matter what. So that's even if it doesn't show world. up, it's still going to, it's still going to win. Well, see, that's going to be the thing actually. If Gaeth doesn't show up, I think the two of you are going to pull the like Donald Trump move, right? Of like, Oh, well we only didn't show up cause uh, we knew we would win. So Gaius was just doing the nice thing and allowing a, some other horses to compete for the arc. But fundamentally, they everyone knows that uh, Gaius is the real winner. I 100%, well, I 100% can see this argument coming if Gaius is not, is not sent to, to Longshot. Well, that's why they said Piledriver wasn't going to the arc. He didn't want to ruin Gaston of the Enable third win. It's a good move. All right. Well, until next time, talk to you boys later. Yep, see ya.